Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast. I'm here with an amazing individual. I'm super excited to intro him, but let me first thank those individuals who are out there giving themselves for us first responders, military personnel, anybody that's out there fighting the battle, thank you. I am honored. I've done some cool research on you. I've been able to take a deep dive on on some of your different... One thing I did miss is that you are an author of 15 different books, which is super... I mean, how cool is that? Well, I don't know. I just have found out I have a lot to say. I did kind of harass you because I I received a, a quick bio from you. I believe it came from one of your personnel. She indicated that you had an IQ of 160. So I figured you have an IQ of 160. Heck, man, you can write as many books as you want. Well, I didn't know that was in any bio piece. I'm kind of embarrassed because I never tell any. I don't even know how she knows that. There's a test somewhere, man. So let me introduce you. This is my friend, Kellen. Oh, I want to make sure I say this right. Flukiger. That is amazingly perfect. Flukiger, because it looks different. I was a keynote speaker at a conference for three days once. It was put on by my friend, and he left the L out of my last name. So on the program, and he spent three days apologizing, and I got to spend three days making jokes. So we were fun. I love what we're going to get into. You've been an executor, but currently for the last few years, you have been a life coach. And not only just a life coach, but you've experienced addiction. You help men and women through addiction. Give me a brief outline of what you would cover in a coaching session. Right before this call, I had a a little group, uh, which I run three or four times a year, a group of people who are authors. They want to write books. And all three of these that are in this particular group, this is the first time they've written a book. And so they're capturing their own story, their own journey, what they've learned, and using it as a vehicle to tell their story and teach something that they believe will help a group of people. So that's one example of the coaching that I do. Other kinds of things, like I had a, have lots of business owners come that want to work to grow their business. I had one fellow who I worked with for a couple of years, and we helped his business, this and that. It was all good. And then he came to me one day, and he said, can you help my son? And I said, well, I don't know. What is he, what's going on? And he said, well, he's a heroin addict. And he dropped out of college between his junior and senior year. He was on the honors program and something happened and he got uh, experimenting with drugs and he dropped out of school and he'd been an addict for a couple of years. And, you know, he had a girlfriend and a kid and he was on the verge of losing everything. And so this was, that particular one was just straight up hardcore. Can we do something as an intervention to immediately stop this from occurring and get him into a you know, a program that he can do something long-term. So there's been, you know, serious things like that. There've been my own decades of depression. I had MDD, major depressive disorder, that went untreated for 40 years from my teens till I was 53. Finally, in 2007, I had a divine intervention that gave me the invitation to get sober. And I accepted that and changed life pretty radically in 2007. And for the last 14 years, I've been building a coaching practice, helping people understand who they really are as divine beings that have a purpose on the earth. And that usually does not include wasting life with stories and addictions and those kinds of things like I used to do. Let's dive into it, if you don't mind, because I'm looking at you and I hope my guests will take a deep dive on you as well, Kellen. And you don't look like the face of 
of depression. You don't look like the face of addiction. And neither do I, right? And so what's interesting is I went through and I, I've been trying to figure out what's the face of addiction. What's the face of depression? And I start looking, I pull some names just randomly online of people that I have seen struggle with depression and addiction. So you got like a Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey is, is one of those guys that, that has been into our homes through the television. We've heard his YouTube videos. I mean, Robin Williams took his own life. You know, you see Johnny Depp, a guy that I really like, Eminem. I love his music. I just, I mean, it's me. Captain America, Chris Evans, Angelina Jolie, Michael Phelps. This year in, uh, actually the last few months, we saw Simone Biles, who's the Olympic gold medalist gymnast, right? She came out and talked about it. Even last week on, on NFL Today, Terry Bradshaw came out and was talking about it. So we hear all these names, man, and but we still are like, well, I may have it, but I don't want to talk about it. You indicated that you were a high-functioning depression individual. Can you enlighten us a little bit and, and tell us why we wear these masks and when's it okay to take them off? That's a perfect segue. I was raised in a two-parent home, uh, you know, middle class. Nothing indicated that there should be an issue. But the problem was it was very religious. My mom was a fanatic about that. And in her mind, violent discipline was the only way to ensure compliance and good behavior. So. The kind of discipline I received my entire upbringing as a child today would be felony child abuse and would have been cause for removal from the home. In those days, uh, I hid, I was ashamed, and I never told anyone. But I remember, for example, even in high school, getting dressed last in the locker room because I didn't want anyone to see that I was black and blue. I, I you know, was afraid of that because it meant something was wrong with me. So starting in my early teens, I began to seek escape through using drugs. I started with inhalants, sniffing gas, you know, just to escape periodically. But from the thing that I took out of that experience was two things. One, I'm not good enough and I never will be. I really suck. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. So that I believed with all my heart from my early teens for decades. The second thing is I need to somehow do something to prove that I'm okay and get that stamp of approval on my forehead from my mom that says approved. So I tried to do that. I tried for 40 years from 13 to 53. I tried and what I tried, I got all kinds of good jobs. I made a lot of money. I abandoned what I really wanted to do, which was music. I had a lot of musical talent. I love singing and playing, etc. So I could do that on the side, but being a musician was not okay because musicians are bad people. They're drug addicts and they are promiscuous. And so I ended up being my mother's worst nightmare. But it was not okay to be a musician. So I went and I got a career and a regular career path and got to be a high-flying executive, blah, blah, blah. But the truth was I hated myself. I burned through. I didn't know how to have real feelings. The only experience I had with love was conditional love. You're okay if you do this way and behave this way. I didn't. I got in trouble and, like I said, discipline. But beyond that, I then adopted a thing of self-sabotage. So when I would get success, I don't deserve this level of success. So I had to sabotage it. So I ended up blowing up different careers and 
marriages. I was married and divorced three times. I had no idea how to be a decent partner. I attracted women that had their own sets of issues. One was raised by an alcoholic stepdad and one whose mother had committed suicide when she was 12. Today, after all the work I've done, I understand what that sort of thing does to someone. At the time, I had no idea. And I only went about doing the one thing I knew how to do, which was make money. So I had this roller coaster of successes and failures, which included different addictions. But the main addiction for Kellen was self-loathing. I hate myself. And whether it's with a substance, didn't matter, alcohol, uh, cocaine was my favorite. There was a time when I was a $3,000 a week coke addict. And I was making so much money at the time that that was lunch money. And that was, when I said high-functioning addict, that was it. I was hiding behind the scenes, still able to do what I was doing. It was sort of a classic life in the fast lane, eagle song kind of thing. On and on and on, hating myself. The relationship battlefield behind me was a disaster. And that went on for 40 years, up and down, up and down. And I'm happy to tell as much detail as you want there, but it was really just a repetitive cycle of success, sabotage, success, sabotage over and over again. Yeah, Kellen, if you don't mind, let me interrupt you just for a second. I appreciate, I'm hearing a lot of patterns that we see in active addiction. And maybe you can kind of help some of the listeners through this. So when did you leave home from your parents? I left home at 17. But even after 17, they still had a ton of power over the decisions you were making. Infinite power. I believe to the core of my soul that I was the problem and that everything that was wrong with me, with my relationships, was my fault. So when I got married the first time, my mom didn't want me to. You shouldn't get married. Don't do that. Don't do that. So I did anyway. And then I wanted her to you know, accept it. And I wanted her to like my wife and I wanted to be integrated. I wanted to get that stamp of okayness. And so I twisted myself as a pretzel to try to be that person she wanted me to be, you know, so I could finally get that approval. So no, I didn't go away and leave them. I left home and went on my own on life, but with this gigantic rope around my neck tied to that elusive thought of, I need to get that approval because after all, she's right and I suck. That was the tenant underneath my whole life. So Kellen, how did you finally get that rope off? Because I, I believe a lot of people, a lot of us are in this stage right now. And you said some things that, that really you hated yourself. There was real feelings behind this. How did you finally get to the point where you transitioned from hating yourself over 40 years? I mean, that's a lot of trauma, brother. How did you get to the point to where you've loved yourself? We all have things that happen. Sometimes in the addiction world, you say hit rock bottom. Sometimes that involves losing job, house, everything, and you find yourself on the street with nothing. Uh, For me, uh, I had attempted suicide a couple times uh, and failed. I am quite sure because there was providence involved. But in 2007, I had an event take place, two events actually, that I'll describe for you in August of 2007. So in August of 2007, I was at the peak of my earning. I was making so much money that my 3,000 bucks a week didn't matter. I had a high-powered bunch of positions, blah, blah, blah. I came home on a Friday night. I was a single again for the third time. I had four teenagers living with me. I had 10 kids, but four of them were living with me. Some of them were grown up and married. And uh, I came home that night and I was getting ready to go party for the weekend. And I would have been a weekend bender, the whole thing, 96 hours or whatever. I might've come out of it and gone back to work on Tuesday, but 
Friday night, I came home, and all of a sudden, I was getting ready to go out, and I had this urge to turn on the television. And that doesn't sound like anything, except I didn't know how to turn on the TV. I had installed the biggest thing you could buy, the greatest, latest, whatever, and I'd had somebody come in and put it all in, but I never watched TV. I just had it because when you make all that money, you're supposed to have this crap, right? So there it was, but I didn't know how to turn it on. So I had to ask one of the kids to turn it on, and one of my daughters turned it on and threw the remote at me, and you know, 16-year-old stomped out of the room like stupid old man. Okay, fine. So the program that came on was a program titled Intervention. Now, I didn't know what it was, but it's a reality TV show about people who stage interventions for busted people. So I thought, holy crap, what is this? Well, the protagonist was a high-ranking executive with a cocaine problem. I watched about 10 minutes and I got mad and I turned it off and said, I'm not watching this crap. I stomped around the house for about a half an hour, did some other things and was getting ready to go out. And for some reason, I felt compelled to turn the TV back on. This time I knew how. So I turned the television back on and that very program started over at the beginning in the middle of the hour. And no, I don't have a DVR and no, it wasn't on the schedule and no, it can't do that. It scared the crap out of me. So I sat down and thought, all right, I'm going to watch this. I watched it. It went really badly. The guy turned down all the help, fought with his family, stomped off, et cetera, et cetera. But it scared me bad enough that I went to bed instead of going out. When I went to bed, I went to hell. What I mean by that is somehow when I went to bed, I went somewhere, I don't know, but in front of my eyes, the panoply of my life, all the suffering, the struggle of my own and that everyone had endured around me, not in an accusatory shouting way, but just the sort of drama played in front of my eyes. And I experienced the most terrible remorse and sadness that I've ever experienced Uh, I can't even describe it. After a long period of time, I didn't know how long I heard a voice. And the voice said, it is enough. Again, not in an angry way, but just it is enough. I woke up and it was Saturday afternoon at five o'clock. So some 18 hours had gone by. I got up and realized that I had been invited to change my life. I had no idea what I was going to do or how to do it, but I knew I had to get out of the work that I was in and go do something completely different. So I threw away $1,000 worth of stuff that I had. I went cold turkey from 3000 bucks a week to zero in one day. I never touched it again. And that was the first piece of the uh, divine intervention. The second piece was two weeks later. I didn't quit my job immediately or the contracts. It wasn't a job. I had a bunch of contracts. I didn't walk away immediately. Two weeks later, the other half happened. And that was this. Uh, in the position I had, I used to get free stuff all the time. You know, think of CEOs that get free tickets to this and free bottles of that, you know, all that kind of stuff. What I got was a couple of tickets to a concert. Uh, this concert was a classical concert by a cellist, Yo-Yo Ma. If you know classical music, you know who that is. And he's the greatest cellist in the universe. And if you don't, that's fine, but it was very prestigious thing. So I was single again for the third time and I didn't want a ticket like that to go to waste. So I went to the office and I said, who likes classical music? And some lady in one of the departments I managed said, I do. And I said, well, have I ever given you anything before? And she said, "Uh, no. So I said, okay, fine. I gave you the ticket and I said, I'll see you there. So we met at the venue halfway through and the concert was electrifying and I'm stone cold sober now for two weeks. Halfway through the concert, I had a feeling come over me that I recognized from two weeks before. And a voice said in my mind, "Uh, you need to marry this woman. And I said, you're insane. I've screwed that up countless numbers of times. This is not happening. This is madness. Later that night, we were backstage because of course they were backstage passes and all that stuff, came back and said, comma, and you need to tell her tonight. 
So I argued furiously because, of course, she could have sued me for sexual harassment and a bunch of other stuff. But you don't win those arguments. So I did. And she didn't call the police or go to HR or do anything. She It went like you thought. You know, are you insane? What are you talking about? Two weeks later, she had her own, within the next two weeks, she had her own set of experiences. So four weeks after that initial event, she resigned. I quit, walked away from all the contracts I had, and we've been together for 14 years. The point of that story was I was issued an invitation to get sober. I accepted it. I didn't know what it was going to take. Two weeks later, an angel was sent to help me with the big problem, which is the 40 years of unspoken depression. Because up to that time, I had never spoken to a single soul in my whole life about anything that was going on in my heart, my life, my feelings, or anything. So you asked me what the turning point was. It was that time. And the next three years were spent talking to people, exploring what had happened in my life, finally seeking help, coming out from hiding, being afraid of talking about it, feeling less than. It was a choice to go get some help, to say, it's okay, I'm busted, I need to frickin' fix this because I'm done with this old life. So that was the event. Man, I love it, brother. So tell me this, I did the cold turkey thing. Worst experience of my life. For the listeners out there, how was it for you? It scared the crap out of me. I couldn't imagine not being high. I couldn't imagine facing life. The idea of being sober scared the daylights out of me. But the thought of what I had experienced in remorse of continuing to live in that stream of events that I had witnessed was not acceptable. And the second part of that was a feeling in my heart that if there was a, a divine being, God, if you will, who cared enough that after everything I had done, I mean, divorced three times, the way all those went were horrible. I was horrible. The behavior was awful. My, you know, I, I was at fault at least 50, 80% in all of those situations. And I realize it takes two to tango, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought if somebody cares enough to invite me and make a space after that. I don't care what it takes. I'm in. And so here's the rest of it. My wife's name is Joy. I mean, like you can't make this stuff up, right? If that's available, I'm going there. And I don't care how much broken glass I have to crawl over. I'm going. Man, I can feel it, brother. I can see your emotion and your passion about this. And I'm telling you, God is good. Here's the thing. People ask me often, well, Kellen, if there's one thing you could tell people, what would it be? Here it is. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you're doing right now. I don't care who has done what to you. It is never too late to matter and to have a big impact. If you will, and as you lean into your divine heritage and your divine destiny, it is never too late. Man, that's powerful. So tell me, from the moment you made that decision, you've had no relapse. So why are we making relapse optional? Why do people, I, this, this is my big, this is my big frustration, Kellen, honestly. I, and I had this, a similar experience that you did spiritually that I, I just fear not keeping my commitments with God. But why is it okay to relapse? So let's be really clear. I've relapsed at a bunch of things, just not drugs. So I've sucked at, ha I mean, this woman, she walked away from a career. I've asked her many times, what on earth possessed you? Everybody in the office knew I was using drugs. They didn't know, but they knew, right? So I said, what on earth possessed you to walk away from a career? 
She had a very nice career just to walk away off into the sunset with some drug addict. Like what? And she said, I knew. I said, I don't know, except for I knew in my heart it was the right thing to do. So she did that. And in the years that followed, so I got sober in a day, but 40 years of depression doesn't evaporate. So I didn't know how to have a friend. I didn't know how to tell the truth. I didn't know how to be a friend. I didn't even know how to value the angel that had been given and that had agreed to go off into the sunset with this moron. Like that took years of work and failing. And she felt like this was a calling for her. And so I had all kinds of relapses in terms of how I behaved, in terms of my own evaluation of my worth. Am I going to make this? I just didn't happen to go use drugs again. But there was a million other things that I did wrong. The self-loathing was key. It just didn't manifest itself in a line of white. Let me ask you, if you don't mind, I think I know the answer, but I think this is super important. What was harder for you to overcome? Relationships, the the behaviors that you committed in relationships, or the actual physical addiction? People ask me often, what was your drug of choice? And my drug of choice was self-loathing. The manifestation of, you know, my favorite cocktail, EKG, ecstasy, ecstasy, ketamine, and cocaine. That was all nothing. Alcohol, cocaethylene, who cares? The hard thing was I hate myself. I deserve nothing. That was a hundred times harder than any individual substance. Do you love yourself today? I love myself with all of my being. How did you get there? One of the things I give my clients to do is the mirror work. And that is to start with three minutes and look in the mirror in your own eyes and say the words, I love you. I had a client once tell me when he came back to a coaching session, he said, I'd rather put my hand in a meat grinder than do that because he tried to do it and he looked away and changed the words and it's lying and I can't do it and whatever. I don't care because the truth is you can't love someone else more than you love yourself. You can pretend you you do. You can go through the motions. You can use nice behaviors towards someone else as a camouflage, but you cannot truly love someone more than you love yourself. And you must work on self-love if you want to heal. How do we work on ourselves? And I, and I love this mirror work. I think it's phenomenal. But a lot of people fear that. That's the last to go, right? It's easy. It's easy to destroy our lives. It's easy to use drugs because we don't want to face it. So how do you teach people to face it? The first element is you have to want it. Some people are comfortable with their stories. They're married to the excuses. And here's what I say. I say, look, you have a right to live in this misery the rest of your life until you no longer draw breath. No one can take that path away from you. You know what that feels like. You know where that leads. You've walked that road until the path is worn smooth. So I'm not going to tell you you can't go there. But what I want to do is invite you to consider a place that feels better, that is not numb, that feels exciting, that's challenging. And we can do a little at a time. Like one of the things that is most prevalent with me and with addicts of any kind addicted to mediocrity or drugs or self-loathing or whatever is they never keep their word to themselves. They promise they'll do this and this and this and they don't. So here's a new game. The new game is I said it, I did it. I said it, I did it. Start with something tiny. 
I said, I'm going to do this one thing. My first advice is stop making promises. Stop. And then start with a tiny thing that you are going to keep no matter what. Here's the game. Shrink it small enough so you know you can do it. Because once you start the game of I said it, I did it. I said it, I did it. I said it, I did it. However small you start, you then get to become a person who trusts themselves. Their word to themselves means something. So mirror work, I said it, I did it, I said it, I did it. Because when you can't keep your own word to yourself, then of course you hate yourself. Man, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question, and I, uh, I'm hearing exactly what you're saying. I just hope, I hope these listeners are hearing it. You went 40 years, 40 years of not loving who you are. It's taking you some time. Does Joey, your wife, does she love you? All of you. All the mistakes. Because I find that really hard in recovery because... We have so much baggage and damage that we caused in our past. I had a huge blow last night, a huge blow that in the past would have caused me to relapse. I couldn't sleep last night about it. It was a thing from the past that I never realized and I never fixed it. So I want to know that your wife, does she love you? She's the only reason I'm still breathing air. She's the only reason I've made it to all the counselors. She's the only reason that I... When I said God sent an angel, he did. And my point here is, okay, Colin, you got to do that because you you got that help. The help you need is available for you. I was thick-headed and I needed a two-by-four. Maybe you do too. Yes, she loves me. Not because there isn't a reason not to, but because she simply makes a choice. Love is a verb. It is not a feeling. To love someone means I choose to use my spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental resources to serve you, to lift you, and bless you. I choose to do that. So I love you. You can't make me not. I don't need anyone's permission to love them. And so, yes, she loves me because she has made a commitment between her and God that she is going to do this because she said so, period. Man, that's powerful. I know the process that you've gone through. I know those, those steps, those long nights, those agonizing moments. I get that. I hope this goes big. I hope that people can feel of your spirit the way that I can feel your spirit. I know that God's present right now in this conversation, and I, and I thank you for that. If you were going to leave one thing for the listeners, what would you tell them? I know you've given us some big, big coins today, but what would you tell them? That a little progress is good. Sometimes, for me at least, the idea of being sober forever or not being angry forever or being nice forever is overwhelming. So let me ask you to play a different game. If you took 3% more responsibility for your own happiness or your own sobriety or for creating the life you want, you can use whatever language you want, but if tomorrow not someday. If tomorrow you took 3% more responsibility for your own success, sobriety, happiness, recovery, repair attempt, amends, whatever words you want to use, just 3%, what would you do? I don't want this to be a rhetorical question. Identify one small thing that in your mind is 3% more responsibility. What would that look like? Then do that one little thing. And then the day after that, ask yourself the same question. What would it look like 
If I took 3% more responsibility for my own happiness, sobriety, recovery, life, repair, amends, whatever it is, well, that's not very much. I can do 3%. Okay, good. And then another 3%. You realize in a month you'll be 100% better? That's good. So let's do it. I said it, I did it. If you don't mind, Kelly, I'm going to steal that from you. Steal away. I said it, I did it. There is so much power in getting away from the feeling that you can't trust yourself, that you're automatically a liar, that as soon as you say it, you know you're going to fail. Then shrink the damn goal. Shrink the damn goal. 3%. We can all reach 3%. We can all do it. Thank you so much, Kellen, for being on the podcast, for sharing your amazing hope and experience with us. I appreciate you. I want to give you a second. How can, I know there's going to be listeners saying, please tell me how to find this guy. How do we do it? What's the best way to, to connect with you? You know the fun thing about having a weird name like Kellen Flukiger? I am so easy to find. If you spell my name right and put it on Amazon, you'll see a whole bunch of books. If you spell my name right and put it in Google, you'll see thousands of references, both for my YouTube channel and for my old executive days. If you go on Facebook, there are only two Kellen Flukigers in the world of 8 billion people, and the other one is my oldest son. So you're not going to have any trouble finding me. The only requirement is you do have to spell my name right. F-L-U-C-K-I-G-E-R. That's right. Kellen Flukiger. You can find me like when I went to get my website, www.kellenflukiger.com, like there was no competition. I didn't have to pay anything for it. $2.99. Nobody else wanted it, right? Because there aren't any. I was just giving it away. <laughs> That's awesome. I have honestly been blessed. I know my listeners are going to love this. I know they're going to reach out. We're going to post it on Facebook. We're going to post it on Instagram. We're going to connect you because this is important. Your vibe, your information was, was much needed today. If you want to learn more, please go to his, his site. Keep chasing the vase. Check out www.striplingwarriorchallenge for more information, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. You are so welcome, and I can't end without honoring you for the work that you're doing to add good to the world. Like you have a choice of things that you could do and you have made a choice to honor your own recovery and yourself by choosing to be a beacon of light and to add good to the world. And I want to honor you for that work. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate that. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcast to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.